Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The public art program of MARTA, Artbound, has been beautifying stations around our city for over four years. Recently, they collaborated with Atlanta artist Adam Bostick and the experimental art company Dashboard to reimagine the tunnel leading to the historic King Memorial Marta Station. Later this hour, we'll hear about that multimedia art project, which combines actual light reflectors with audio reflections from area residents. First, the extreme impact of climate change is a regular part of daily life now. Scientists are ringing the alarm that immediate steps must be taken to curb the rise of the Earth's temperature. A new exhibition addressing how designers can help to reduce the devastating effects of climate change is on view at MODA, the Museum of Design Atlanta. Survival Architecture and the Art of Resilience is a traveling show created by Artworks for Change. Randy Jane Rosenberg is founder of the organization and curator of the show. She joins me now via Zoom Randy, welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. When did you found the organization Artworks for Change? We were founded in 2008. We had been producing exhibitions prior since 2005, but we didn't become our own nonprofit till 2008. And we were doing a lot of one-off exhibitions for other organizations, and we found we had a team that, that worked very well together, and uh, we just felt like it would be better for us to do our own shows. And that said, we, we often, the ideas for our shows often came from other people, including this particular exhibition. The idea was generated through some University of California Berkeley architecture professors 
who came to us and asked if we'd consider this particular exhibition. Oh, wow. So the intersection of art, design, and climate change has been something you've worked toward for 15, 16 years already. Yes, yes. Well, some of the groups that I had been working with prior to Artworks for Change, one was the United Nations, who through the United Nations Environment Program had asked us to do their World Environment Day exhibitions, which was a great model for us because the UN would go into the host cities worldwide, uh, whatever city happened to be hosting. One year we were in Oslo, the year that Al Gore won the uh, Nobel Peace Prize, and they would have parades and children's events, and the Queen came to see the exhibition, and it's just like a whole week-long event and bringing attention to all these issues. So that was a big impetus in terms of part of what our mission is, and that is that we do create these exhibitions that are content-driven, but we do ask the host museum to reach out to the community and use the exhibition as a physical platform to draw the resources within the community already so that they can host programming and tap the immediate community. So it's also taking in art and design as activism. Yes, yes, very much so. We don't see ourselves as capacity builders. As I say, we really go to the community and and ask them to, in some ways, own the exhibition and be a a collaborator in terms of community engagement. Would you explain the central themes of this exhibition, Survival Architecture and the Art of Resilience? Sure, sure. Well, the exhibition is divided into four parts, and the artwork itself is quite eclectic. And people are going to respond to different works, of course, but we try to create a a framework so that it makes the topics accessible and people can start to understand the bigger issue. So, So the exhibition is divided into four parts. The first is circular, and that focuses on design and creating structures that are made of materials that can be used and reused. So for example, Bill McDonough, he's sort of the founder or coined the phrase cradle to cradle. So it's taking materials that are natural, but they can also go back into the earth or they can be repurposed or reused. The second section is portable. And these are more nomadic kinds of dwellings or movable. And what's interesting is that we you know, initiated this around climate shelter in response to climate change, but there's at least, we're in, we're in Oakland, California, there's so such a big issue around homelessness for so many different reasons. And this really addresses refugees, homelessness, refugees of climate change. Um, so it really takes into a lot of different populations. The third section is visionary. And of course, this is This is the one that I find very exciting because, you know, as an arts organization, it was really important for us to have the artists and architects 
use their creativity and we weren't necessarily looking for designs and creations that could be functional as much as just pushing the boundaries, thinking expansively, thinking visionary. And so there are a lot of fun pieces in that particular section. And then the fourth section is resilience. And those are those have to do more with artworks that are existing or structures, I should say, that are existing. IKEA built a better shelter that was used for the Syrian refugees. They, they, I think, provided hundreds of thousands of these shelters that could be set up relatively quickly that had all these adaptable features. They had solar that could provide electricity and a variety of different elements within the, the architecture. I'm intrigued with the portability component all that encompasses. And you talked about the homeless situation, how tragic it is. What are some examples of setups that are both water resistance and provide warmth? Well, one great example from that particular section is a group, a Detroit-based nonprofit organization called the Empowerment Plan. And they were engaging home, the homeless population within Detroit to actually make these coats that could transform from both a coat, a warm coat, but also into a sleeping bag. So essentially you're carrying your your home with you, you're wearing your home. And they were getting materials, I believe from GM and some of the auto manufacturing plants within the area. So they're really heavy duty kinds of materials. And at the same time, they're providing jobs for people. They're making these sleeping bag coats available for the homeless population. So it's, it's been a pretty remarkable project that way. Oh, indeed. And uh, also remarkable is a structure in this exhibition, the cricket shelter. Would you talk about the dual purpose of this home and would you describe how it looks? Yeah, so we're really fortunate because the we, we got a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts to create some new works and the Cricket Shelter was one of the pieces that we commissioned from a group in Brooklyn called Terraform One. So it's it was huge, the original piece. It's gotten a little bit smaller, but it was always a bit hard to travel it around. And so I'm really excited because Atlanta at Moda will be taking the actual physical structure and not just images of the structure. But the, the piece was created both as a shelter and also as a way to provide food. You know, it's around food security for uh, ideally a family of four who can live in this structure. It's set up with a hygiene system for crickets to reproduce. They need the human body temperature to warm up their environment so they can reproduce. And in a lot of countries, crickets are a source of protein. It's a very inexpensive, source of protein and it doesn't require the resources that you know cattle or or a lot of animal source protein requires yeah it's it's uh 
very economical. So, so it's kind of a, a fun structure that way. And it's made out of plastic, like plastic containers, sort of these big water containers, jugs that are put together. And there's this whole system in Terraform. One actually has a like a biology lab set up within their architectural practice. So they're they're very committed to to these ideas in their design. I have to tell you, Randy, as fascinating as I found this, I also thought, wait, isn't this a bit unfair? Essentially we're emulating them, right? In this home environment, but there's also the message if we eat them, the whole planet will be better off. It's well, it's true. It's true. With food scarcity, it's it's a great solution in that way. So yeah, it serves many purposes, as you say. Climate change impacts everyone, but it is particularly devastating to those who are impoverished. What affordable housing solutions are explored in this show? Within the resilience section, there are certainly some interesting ideas. Again, there's the IKEA and more and more we're seeing like small houses. I know even within Oakland, there, there are these structures of series of encampments or container, shipping containers and use those for housing. Alejandro Alvino, who won the Pritzker Prize a few years back, started designing housing where they're they're like duplexes, but he would leave half of the building undesigned so that people could make it their own. And, And trying again, this was with the idea that it is affordable housing. But within the exhibition, we have there's all kinds of structures. There's one called cardboard origami, which is made out of cardboard and it's foldable, collapsible. But the architects that came out of LA, Southern California, the architect who designed it with a whole program where these structures are housed on a private property and people who are living there, it's, it's the idea that it's temporary and that they are cardboard, but they provide resources to help them ultimately get jobs and be able to afford uh, more permanent kind of housing situations. Yeah, there's a lot of very creative things going on. I should say, earlier this month, a UN climate panel reported that human activities unequivocally cause climate change. And we'd have to take immediate large-scale measures in order to reduce the level of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So many things that we've created to make our lives easier, in fact, are destroying lives. How does an exhibition such as yours lead to solutions? Well... Of course, first and foremost is making people aware of these issues. I mean, there are still people who believe that climate change, climate crisis is not really something that exists. 
So we do try to talk about, we don't want to focus on the problem. Our whole approach is really to be visionary and, you know, where can we go from here? Yeah. So we, we look to certainly incite conversation and will inspire action by partnering with community through through the museums, we're hoping that groups who have made their mission 100% around climate and resilience and housing will make the resources known so that people can go within the community and explore the resources that are there. Artworks for Change is not experts. What we are good at is finding art that hopefully can tell a story and inspire people and, and get them to start thinking about these things. And even the whimsy that's in the visionary section to start understanding, you know, what it means when there's flooding and when people lose their houses, uh, you know, the whole coastline starts to slowly disappear. And this is not just in the United States. I mean, there's all these stories about UK and you know, the water levels, the sea levels rising or droughts or we're having unbelievable heat and fire, you know, certainly in California. Well, Randy, I applaud the work, your intersection of art, architecture, design, the environment. It just is for the betterment of us all. Thank you so very much for talking with me. My pleasure. I'm so delighted we could bring the show to Atlanta. Randy Jane Rosenberg, curator and founder of Artworks for Change, the exhibition Survival Architecture and the Art of Resilience, will be on view at MODA August 26th through November 10th. More information will be available on our website, wabe.org slash city lights. Coming up, the Grant Park Reflection Tunnel that's stunning locals and visitors alike. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. MARTA's public art program, Artbound, has been beautifying stations around our city for over four years. Recently, they collaborated with Atlanta artist Adam Bostic and experimental art company Dashboard to reimagine the tunnel leading to the historic King Memorial Marta Station. The result 
is Reflections, a stunning multimedia art project combining actual light reflectors with audio reflections from area residents. City Light senior producer Kim Drobe spoke with Dashboard's Courtney Hammond, artist Adam Bostick, and the director of MARTA's Artbound Project, Catherine Durga. Here, Durga gives an overview of the Artbound Project. So Artbound is MARTA's public art program, and we launched in June of 2017, so we've just hit the four-year mark. And this Reflection Tunnel Project is one of our largest so far public art installations we've done. We've done lots of murals. We've had performing arts in the stations prior to the pandemic, music and theater and dance. And so um, this is the first of many, we hope, sculptural installations near and in our stations. Well, it looked like an amazing undertaking. Let's talk a little more about how the process came to be. You partnered with Dashboard originally, is that right? That's right. Yeah, Dashboard, of course, local, very well-respected curatorial organization. And basically, we had a problem and they had an answer for us. So (laughs) we went to them and said, hey, this tunnel needs beautification. It's an important pedestrian walkway from the transit-oriented development that's being built behind the station. It's also an important pedestrian walkway for people coming from Memorial Drive to connect over to the Sweet Auburn neighborhood and to Old Fourth Ward. And so we wanted to just improve the overall experience, you know, knowing Dashboard, knowing that they are able to come up with a lot of really creative solutions for places that a lot of people have given up on, you know, before this, I thought this was an ideal partnership. And sure enough, they came up with something that was, to my mind, not only really creative and cool, but also just really elegant in its simplicity. So by um, tapping Adam to complete this project, we were just really thrilled to have that partnership. How it worked out together was so great. Well, it really did work out. It's quite stunning to drive through it. It genuinely took my breath away. Adam, when you were presented with the project, how much creative freedom did you have and and how quickly did you know what you wanted to do? As far as creative freedom, it was really like a a collaborative effort on trying to figure it out. But, you know, being one of the first intersections in Atlanta, so we were trying to think of something that was creative, that was also bringing light into the tunnel. And so, you know, we commonly use a lot of different materials in art fabrication. So it was wanting to just come up with something that was timeless and something that was a new and, and innovative. And I mean, they really had a lot of creative freedom, but it was more pitching a lot of different ideas to how can we bring light into that tunnel? And it all just kind of, I think, kind of synced up all the transit properties. The materials being road reflectors, you know, they're indestructible and they're really will be vibrant forever, you know? and. I went to a lot of effort to try to find the most colorful and high quality ones. A lot of research went into this to make sure that not only is it like a simple material, but it's like the best version of that Mm -hmm. um, to be, you know, incorporated into artwork and such a material that you see every single day. I found that a lot of them were kind of lackluster. And so I found a, a one group that was making them, they were just so bright and really colorful. And we did a mock-up of it and put together a pattern and, you know, experimented with different patterns, but I wanted to make something that was just really almost timeless. It it doesn't need to be something that is after a year or two, it doesn't make sense, but something that 
be there forever and be beautiful and also incorporate other people's stories into it and it be a thoughtful piece. And Courtney, you could probably speak to the other people's stories that Adam's referencing. What's the other half of this project? The other half of this project is a historical archive of the neighborhood at its present moment. This is a permanent project and and a very historically rich and important part and neighborhood of Atlanta. Um, We wanted to make sure to pay homage to that and the people who are currently doing such powerful work in that neighborhood. And obviously the term reflection can mean a few things at once, literally with the reflectors and also conceptually with the historical archive. We have plaques that we have started. They're black diamonds that go in the center of the beautiful design that Adam did. You can follow along them and with your phone, click on them uh, on a QR code and listen to a live interview with these neighbors talking about their experiences throughout history in the neighborhood and to the present and their aspirations for the future of the neighborhood. We worked with Historic Atlanta, which is led by a historian, Scott Morris, who's actually a neighbor of the tunnel. He lives literally um, right next to it. And we tapped him to introduce us to some of the leaders within that neighborhood who are doing great work. For instance, Reese Forrest, who has been preserving Word, which is the first Black radio station in America. Hey, we're here with Reese DeForest. Uh, this is Scott Morris, and we are recording now. And so, Reese, if you would just kind of tell me your your history with the Sweet Auburn community, however you want to start that story. I stumbled on to the community um, some 30 odd years ago. Two years into the lease, a black woman comes to the door and opens it, sticks her head in while I'm doing hair, and tells me that the first black radio station in America, WERD, was directly above me. Oh, wow. I had no idea. I was elated to learn the legacy, and then elation turned to enrage because I'm thinking, how dare the people who came before me not bother to preserve a legacy that rich? I just, I still can't understand it. So for 20 years, I've been promoting and preserving the legacy of WERD radio. Oh, wow. Which was the first black radio station in North America. And so there's been, you know, long-term work that people have been doing in the neighborhood, but also an example of another neighbor that we worked with is uh, Maggie Lopez, who is one of the owners of Meat Barrio. I was actually a child when the restaurant opened. I was about 10 years old. And what do you kind of remember from that time? I just remember abandoned buildings and um, not really like a lot of traffic in the area. Do you remember why your family decided to open a restaurant there? Uh, yeah, uh, we actually have a house in Taco Town. Um, okay, right first, behind me. Yeah, we first started in Taco Town. Um, my parents, when they came to Atlanta, and they started selling food in the house. And so a couple of years later, around 2000, they decided to find a location, which was down the street from the house. And okay. um, from there, it took like, couple of years to like renovate and all that stuff because the building was uh it was like a grocery store so we had to like renovate and oh wow and where did your parents move to taco town from from mexico they arrived from mexico and so then when y'all were selling food uh out of the house who was the customer base then uh our customer base was a lot of construction workers that arrived from mexico um 
basically the community. Uh, we A lot of Mexicans lived in Taco Town. We were the only people selling food. So it was like a whole restaurant in my house. Like I was little. I can remember just a lot of families and stuff. And we only had about four tables to seat oh, wow. six people. And until this day, those same guys come to the restaurant. Oh, wow. Yeah, the people that have been going to the house, they've been coming and supporting us here at the restaurant. And during COVID, her mission was to drive around the neighborhood and deliver food to people in need. And so just the kindness that was shown from all of these different neighbors' stories when we were archiving them was so powerful that it became a really integral part of the project as we started with six interviews, but there are hundreds of spaces for these plaques. And so this is a growing project that Marta will continue with us where we will continue to interview and invite neighbors throughout time to sort of give their story so that it could be incorporated into Reflection Tunnel. And we hope that it's just an ongoing archive and this piece will come you know, keep growing and keep being relevant and important to the city. Right on. What a wonderful use of the double meaning of reflection. It's perfect. No, we couldn't help ourselves. (laughs) I I want to speak to that while my heart is full, because I think that it's really, you know, we've been working so hard on this for so long and seeing everyone show up there and just watching everyone go through the tunnel every day as we're doing it, honking their horns and people that come through that tunnel every day to go take Marta are just so overly thankful. Every day we saw them come through and they were just clapping and just how beautiful it was and so thankful that they get to walk through there every day. And being a part of it that is not just a mural or something like that, but it is a community art project where people like uh, Reese and Maggie and Princess Wilson are ha- get to have their words immortalized there. And my artwork around it is just a frame that helps take the uh, somebody that maybe wouldn't get a chance to tell their story to be there permanently. And they can walk down and uh, show someone that, you know, here's my story and everyone gets to hear it. It's pretty awesome. So it was really a humbling collaboration. It really is. Adam, can you speak a little more to the process of the installation? As an outsider looking at it, it looks like such an enormous undertaking. (laughs) It was a lot. Uh, So I own a company, the Arc Design, and we fabricate art, large-scale art and furniture for a lot of hotels and restaurants in Atlanta and around the country. And we're always inventing and coming up with new materials that we're working with is which also kind of inspired me for the the reflection material but undertaking something of that scale you know I work with a a lot of geometry and things like that trying to fabricate different art but also in that way the process was coming up with the pattern then kind of simplifying it and creating templates and then just being able to map it out and just get a system going to do it but it was pretty difficult to to come up with a pattern and being able to replicate that on the wall but once it was all figured out we were able to you know systematically uh, like a machine yeah we we just got it done but it was um, really rewarding it was instant gratification because we came up with a really good system and then also just the transformation watching it happen was like something out of a I don't know, out of some kind of old computer <laughs> computer system <laughs> because we painted, it was all graffiti and uh, we repaired the tunnel and then we painted it 
all uh, matte black and then slowly mapped it out. And it was, uh, it was like the old Pac-Man game or something where you just watched all the dots appear and everybody was so pleased with just daily watching it come together. But it was hard. It was. But it once we figured out how to do it, it went smooth. Can we wow people with some numbers? How many reflectors were used in this? Uh, roughly 20,000 reflectors, road reflectors. <laughs> insane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's so insane. Yeah. And how big was your team that helped you with the install? I, I would say at one time we had seven to eight people working at a time, but collectively, with all the people involved, uh, close to 20 people, I would say. Yeah. That's still like a thousand reflectors per person. Mm-hmm. It was pretty <laughs> okay. wild to, to, at the end of the day, I said, we would count the boxes and the and mounts and like, you know, you guys, we put up, you know, 800 reflectors today or 2000 reflectors a day. And they're like, they didn't believe it. A new truckload would come on site every, every other day. Boxes and boxes of these reflectors. It was also just managing how to get them all perfect. The time that goes into making sure every one of them are, is absolutely straight and absolutely level because that's the kind of the beauty of it, of it, that it's so perfectly level. Everything is straight and evenly placed. That's the art of it to me is making it just like, almost like when you look down the wall, it, the lines are perfect. It looks like it's floating off the wall. And in order to do that, you have to make, be really meticulous and manage that, that install. Phenomenal. What an effort. So Catherine, how are you guys going to top this next time? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Keeps me awake at night. <laughs> so we have a number of station rehabilitations coming up and we're going to be overhauling all 38 stations. So Artbound is kind of following that progression and we're looking to install public art in each of those stations. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people have followed the MARTA 2040 visioning. And so this is a long process, but this is steady. And so we've already started. We have commissioned an artist to complete our airport project, which is going to be a large mosaic at the airport, 15 feet high by 70 feet long. Artist Michael Jones. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and so he's completed the painting that will then become a mosaic after we take it to a mosaic fabricator and they build it and then they bring it on site and install it. So it's a really fun process to kind of have the artist work with the mosaicist to make sure that the painting is, you know, properly reflected in the mosaic. And so we've got that. We've got Indian Creek Station, which is going to get a landmark artwork. We've got HE Homes here in the next year or two. Five Point Station is going to get some wonderful things. And so, yeah, we're just marching along. So you should start to see some nice, good-sized projects in the near future. How do you ensure that the different installations reflect the, not to overuse the word reflect, sorry. <laughs> How do you ensure that it reflects the appropriate community when you're when you're choosing the artist and the artwork? Yeah, it's really important to us. So for instance, with this project, that was something that Dashboard and Adam and I all talked about. How do we make sure that this is a project that does reflect the community? Because Artbound's mission states that it, you know, that we want to reflect and enhance the communities where we reside. So that's kind of number one for MARTA. We feel like we're a connector. And so we want to make sure that we're, you know, properly serving that role. And so that was one way that we thought to bring in the historical part of the project was to talk about the reflections. And we thought about the connection of the tunnel and the way that Atlanta is such a connector. You know, here our airport is 
apparently about two hours flight from almost everywhere in the US. And Atlanta has long been a connector, has been a train connector, has been a even a footpath, you know, connection point before, you know, Europeans colonized the area. So it's connecting and having those memories of the area and carrying that on was important to us. We work a lot with community development groups, neighborhood associations. A big point of this for me is not having Marta come in and say, um, hey, we're putting an artwork here. What do you want? It's to work with groups who already work in the neighborhoods. And so kind of building those relationships too. Very important. Can you speak a little, or is this outside your wheelhouse to everything else that's being done to King Memorial Station? So we are currently in the process of building a transit-oriented development behind King Memorial Station. Um, And this is on MARTA property that has been leased out, ground leased out to a developer. And so what they're building there is a residential property that will um, have a percentage of affordable housing. And that's where I'm not 100% on the numbers. And so forgive me for that, but it will have some percentage of affordable housing in it. And it's meant to be, you know, to create density close to transit. And so that's what's being built there right now. The station itself, you know, has the mural on the front and now we have a reflection tunnel kind of to the side. And so I think we've done a really great job with enhancing it. And I know that what we'd love to do going forward is kind of connecting it more to the historic district. And so creating, helping create some wayfinding that can point folks in that direction as well. Fantastic. Courtney, I can't have you here and not talk about the ramen bar. So could you explain the glow in the dark ramen bar for people who are unfamiliar with that dashboard project? Sure. Uh, Nakamura K is the name of the glow in the dark ramen bar. It means house of Nakamura and it is the world's first glow in the dark ramen bar in a collaboration between dashboard and zoo is zoo, um, which is another really talented design firm led by Ami Suki in Atlanta. We created collectively this really beautiful velvet and gold laden intimate dining space inside of a 20 foot shipping container that is from the outside completely just looks like an everyday shipping container. Um, When you open the door, you really do walk into an otherworldly experience. We were able to bring in actors who are serving the role as yokai spirits, which are Japanese spirits that guide you through the experience and really make it make sense why you're eating glowing ramen. It has to do with an old family story and a search for their parents who were lost when the seas overtook the moon one night. It was a very like magical story. And their children that are serving the ramen are constantly on the search for their parents. And whenever they get close to their parents, as the ramen bar moves around the world and around the country, the produce starts to glow. So every time that you eat the glowing ramen, it means that they are getting close to their parents and you're helping them by every bowl that you eat, figure out exactly where they are. The story's ongoing, you know, on Instagram, it talks about like the birthdays, it gets really heavy in the family uh, design and emotionally it's like really touching story too. So it's not just glowing ramen for ramen's sake. Once you actually come to uh, one of the dinners, you receive a gold token. That gold token 
gets you into other experiences for Nakamura K. So for example, whenever Nakamura K went to Hollywood and was on Mount Yamashiro, people who had gotten the ramen in Atlanta who received a gold coin were able to get into that experience for free. And people did travel across the country to continue to be a part of the story. So it's also about family building and connecting people and really like non-traditional ways which is something the dashboard's really proud of. I think with every project we try to do that, it's like, how do you connect people in like a way they didn't expect? What a story. We are excited about reopening Nakamura. It was just such a beloved project on both of our ends. And, you know, I can't talk about it without talking about all of the people who made it, it was not just our two companies. It was like a lot of really talented artists that had a hand in it. So, and chefs, you know, it's a very chef forward project. But yeah, that, that, that is a project that may come back along with some other wild people connecting projects that we have coming up. Oh, well, we'll look forward to that. I ate, I ate the glow in the dark ramen and it was delicious. <gasps> you did. Yeah, it was so good. It was so good. As someone who experienced <laughs> it, can you tell me a little bit about the connections that you felt? Yeah, it was very, well, it definitely was very mysterious. So you wait sort of in this area where you're, you really don't know what's about to happen. You're like, is this where we eat the ramen? When, when are we eating the ramen? Is something going to glow soon? We didn't know. And then we were led into the container again, not sure what was going to happen next, but it's really, once you get in there, it's so cool. And there you're only in there, at least in this iteration, you were only in there with about maybe six or seven people. Yeah. Everybody's kind of experiencing it at the same time. And that's the coolest thing about, I think, public art is that that sense of wonder that it builds also right. makes a community among right. the people who are seeing it and experiencing it because everybody's like, gosh, this is so cool. Right. Right. You know, it, it takes away those barriers between strangers. And so, yeah, it was just, it's a really great experience. I love it. And Catherine, one other thing I wanted to ask you about, can you elaborate a little bit on the music program that's part of Artbound and whether or not it's opening back up? Yeah. So we did bring back the musicians in a kind of a limited capacity in the middle of June. And then we've ramped up as the summer's gone on. A little concerning now with the spikes that have been going on around the country. So we're asking our musicians to just kind of stay distanced from folks if, as much as possible. But yeah, our Artbound Live program employs, um, we have about 30 people on the roster. And they play at um, 10 to 12 different stations throughout the week. Wherever we have a Marta Fresh Market, a farmer's market, there will always be a musician scheduled to play with them. And then we have, you know, musicians scheduled throughout the system as well. So we try to hit all the different directions of the lines. We try to hit, you know, at least one day a week that somebody has music there. And so it's a really fun program. One thing that I'm really proud of about it is that a few of the musicians prior to the pandemic said to me, you know, this has made it possible for me to be a professional musician, that just the few gigs they were playing at MARTA that were paid gigs that they knew they could count on per month, that was enough to push them over the edge to be able to work as a musician professionally and quit their day job. And so it was really tough when we had the shutdown, you know, they really missed it. Um, And so we were eager to get them back as soon as it was safe enough to do that. And we felt like in June that enough people had hopefully been vaccinated that, you know, it would be a safe thing to put them back in the stations. So they are there now and eager to play for you if you come by. (laughs) (laughs) And we look forward to doing um, more kind of theater and dance moving forward. We have an agreement with True Colors Theater to do some different, yeah, some different performances in the stations. And so we're looking forward to being able to bring them back 
we have Next, which is a really cool salon, kind of, I keep calling it like an artist salon, where they're going to be coming, they bring their artists, their poets, and thought leaders, and kind of have this sort of performance, visual arts, sometimes it's music, and then they have a, a discussion about it afterwards, a led, you know, facilitated audience discussion afterwards. So that's really exciting, too. Oh, wow. You are bringing some cool stuff to us at Landon's. Thank <laughs> I'm trying. You. I'm trying. <laughs> Good job. Makes it Thanks. feel special to be here in this city. Oh, thank you. Adam, looking over your website, one installation piece really caught my eye. Can you share a little bit about the light around us? So the light around us we was a sculpture we built. Pretty amazing, actually. That's kind of a one of the first times working with LEDs and the sensors. So it is a sculpture that integrates LED lights and sensors in the sculpture that senses the environment that you're in. And it's a collaboration with Pablo Nieco that uh, when you get in the environment, it has sound and heat and air quality. Everything is in that space is tied into that sculpture that creates almost like these Rorschach patterns that intensifies in different colors. So for instance, there is a, actually a MARTA where it was installed at the Metropolitan uh, on the West End by Weston Mall, there is a MARTA train that trains would go by. Even the subtle sounds, you could see the lights slowly vibrate and move. And then uh, while we were finishing the sculpture, I believe uh, Jesse with TVS Jesse Altman was monitoring the air quality sensors that was tied into the sculpture. And he had called and said, Hey, what's going on with the sculpture? <laughs> well, we were putting an epoxy floor in. And so the air quality was changing and it was affecting the sculpture. So it's pretty wild. Oh um, my gosh. Yeah. It's uh, really like breathing with a piece of artwork. <laughs> yeah. It was like, yeah, it was like a living piece of artwork and it would help you connect to uh you know, I think it's really cool and it could be used in a lot of different applications for, you know, people that maybe can't sense that their environment is changing and, but the artwork could tell you yeah, it's pretty wild, but we're working. You're hot. <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah. It's hot in here. <laughs> no, but uh, that's a piece that we worked on. Um, we built a, a lot of, uh, a lot of art and, and uh, design, help design and create a, a lot of art and working with other artists and working with dashboard and uh, helping create the opportunity for artists to build things bigger. I'm uh, really proud of that to be able to take people, you know, maybe people's ideas that are smaller or maybe not have a chance or the space to build it. And we help them design and build it bigger. So we built quite a bit of public art. I'm really humbled by this whole opportunity and that, uh, you know, I grew up in Atlanta. And I think that area, Oakland Cemetery, was always a really cool area. We would always go to Daddy D's barbecue and then going down Memorial to into Atlanta. And just to have the opportunity to build that there, I'm just really thankful for Dashboard and Marta Artbound. And it's really an awesome life uh, changing thing for me. And for it to be such a timeless thing and that it got to not just include myself and, and these awesome people, but for all more to come to be able to to be involved is it's just one of the greatest things artist adam bostick speaking with city light senior producer kim drobes they were joined by marta's katherine durga and dashboard's courtney hammond 
You can learn more about the Grant Street Reflection Tunnel on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, a creative spark from Atlanta artist Dr. Fahamu Peku. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. In his paintings, performance art, and academic work, the interdisciplinary artist Dr. Fahamu Peku addresses concerns around contemporary representations of black men. In 2020, soon after the murder of George Floyd, Fahamu Peku spoke about our reckoning with racial injustice. Like many people experienced a range of emotions and anxiety, uh, hope, frustration, joy, laughter, uh, uh, you know, it's run the gamut. But ultimately, I'm very, very, very much encouraged in the awakening, I think uh, is probably the most appropriate word, but the awakening that's happening um, around the country uh, and around the world um, as a result of these protests, as a result of this uprising. For me, you know, it's, it's been an interesting thing to see. It's, this is a subject that I've been addressing in my work for over 20 years. And to see so many people now responding and reacting and, and you know, seeking to engage is really encouraging. I think art is one of the most powerful vehicles for the types of social change that we are seeking. There's something to be said about the voice of the poet versus the voice of the politician, about the voice of the singer versus, you know, the voice of the, the civic leader or whatever you want to call them. Like, there's a way that art can communicate to us and communicate to our interior spaces that, you know, mere rhetoric cannot convey. And I, and I think that we, we have seen that over the course of these types of uh, civil and social justice movements throughout history. You know, when we think about the civil rights movement, you know, for as long as those campaigns were, were, were going on and you had, you know, quite eloquent speakers and, and representatives were behind, you know, podiums and pulpits and, you know, expressing the frustrations of, of people. But when James Brown started singing, I'm Black and I'm Proud, that connected to people in ways that, that go far beyond any speech. There's like in, in the last um, few years, we've seen a, a shift uh, amongst um, museums and galleries and, and within the art world to promote the work of artists who were active during the 60s and 70s, you know, and, and the power in those images, the power in those objects are just as resonant and just as powerful today as they were, you know, 40, 50 years ago. 
but it's because the language that art speaks is a language that goes beyond any particular country border or you know state border or you know whatever it may be like even if you don't speak english you can look at a painting of wadsworth Jarrell and feel the power in it you can understand betty sars uh, sculptures you can get into the work of hank willis thomas you can go deeply into conversations with these artists without necessarily having the quote-unquote right words uh, to say. And I think that makes art a, a powerful vehicle for these times. And I always say in the future, historians will tell what happened, but artists will tell how it felt. Fahamu Peku, in June of 2020, um, art is a vehicle for social change. Dr. Peku will be our guest tomorrow with members of the Art Exchange talking about the exhibition, Whose America Is It Anyway? You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There, you will find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer. And our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.